I'm Shane Kilgalley. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And this fortnight, we are reading through an article by David Graeber that was published in March of 2012, titled Of Flying Cars and the Declining Rate of Profit. Um, I found this to be a really interesting article. Um, it sort of generally articulates this kind of like uh, general disappointment with how technical development has gone in the last half century or so, um, and how we're kind of all left kind of asking, like, basically, where are the flying cars? Like, um, and it's it's a bit of a meme in the kind of the culture where it's like, oh, you know, I was I was promised a jetpack and what I got was a horrible <laughs> dystopia. Um, but there is something there is something beneath that question, right? Like, there is there is an actual dissatisfaction there, um, which uh, Graeber d- digs into. Um, yeah, what what did you think of the the article? Well, uh, I think that's that's definitely correct, and I mean, I I've definitely heard that from my dad, uh, you know, sort of growing up, uh, saying like, "Well, we thought we were going to get the Jetsons, but this is what we got," um, and uh, and and I think this is is very much uh, of a piece of the Californian ideology article because that article was written at a point where um, the left was really on the back foot and this Californian ideology was ascendant and uh, just identifying it as an ideology was kind of the best you could manage, right? Um, whereas this was written from a perspective after the 2008 crisis, this 2012 article, and uh, I feel like Graeber's really trying to uh, deflate that ideology here, right? Like he feels like he can actually make an attack on it and kind of undermine its fundamental assumptions in a way that maybe wasn't possible in the 90s. Uh, so I, I think it's quite interesting from that perspective. Yeah, and it's a it's a hell of an attack as well. Like this, um, I think this does manage to deflate a lot of the um, the Californian ideology and the uh, the sort of techno optimism, the kind of techno determinism. The uh, and I think he even points it out that like um, many people do seem to assume that we do live in an era of unprecedented technological utopia. Um, but we don't seem to, you know, um, in actuality. Yeah, I feel like, well, uh, just to talk on that point, I feel like these days what you hear a lot more is that, like, uh, we sort of got the cyberpunk dystopia we, we dreamed about as kids. <laughs> yeah. So instead of being brought up on the on the Jetsons, we were brought up on Blade Runner. And then that's, <laughs> yeah, it's, pretty it's like. Much. Like, they'll say, oh, we got cyberpunk, but without all the cool parts or something like that, right? I feel like that's kind of the refrain you hear these days as opposed to, um, you know, we are living in the future or something like that. Um, yeah, it's 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 very rarely, we're living in the future. It's more like, oh, we're, we're living in the future. It's awful. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> It's a shrug yeah. of revulsion. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, uh, I'm sure we'll get into this as we, we go through the essay, but... Um, uh, I read through the entirety of uh, Manuel Castells' um, Network Society trilogy, uh, which is this very weighty uh, series. Of pretty, I think it's probably in, in total, probably something like 1,500 pages long of uh, sort of sociological research that mm. Manuel Castells did about the so-called Network Society. And I feel like 
it was written around the turn of the millennium, if I remember correctly, and it was kind of at the peak of sort of the power of this Californian ideology thinking. Um, and uh, it's been very interesting to sort of, you know, as the years have gone by, think back on that reading and the perspective that Castells had and sort of go from a perspective of being like, I can't really disagree with this so much to being able to sort of see it as a, a dated kind of way of thinking and, and coming much closer to Graeber's uh, perspective. Um, so, uh, you know, I think we'll get into this a little bit when we talk about sort of the height of the California ideology that Graeber brings up. But uh, yeah, definitely, I think this essay is a very good way to situate the issue um, historically and like how the discourse has changed. Yeah, definitely. Um, so Graeber kind of opens up with like articulating that uh, for a child that was growing up in the mid to late 20th century, let's say around the 60s or so, um, the future that like, it, it, it's not that it was just sort of promised to them by people who didn't know what they were doing, but like kind of the future as it was being described by serious institutions and serious people was going to contain um, tractor beams and force fields and teleportation pods and anti-gravity sleds and immortality drugs and like colonies on Mars and like space flight and all this kind of stuff. Um, but then aside from like communications technology and like computers and basically none of that has materialized and even even the stuff that has come along like computers is kind of kind of pretty weak in comparison to the predictions that was made for it like i mean even in computing we by now we were supposed to have like um artificial intelligences that would run in entire economies but what we've actually got is like siri which you can't you can't actually get to function like it it responds incorrectly to almost all commands that's given to it yeah and and i feel like well i mean just to get to that economic point we certainly have algorithms that are used for trading on the stock market. And in that sense, the computers are running the economy, but it's a very sort of limited and, and you know, it, they're just there to maximize profit. They don't have any kind of like overall grasp of the well-being of humanity, yeah. you know? Yeah, <laughs> right? like don't. It's not like strong ai in any kind of exciting sense of the term right it's just like oh well how are some rich jerks in you know wall street going to make that much more money for themselves because they're able to invest in a server farm and a bunch of um computer scientists to to min max their uh like, you know, what the microsecond that they can get arbitrage over the other traders on the market. Um, I feel like there used to be a lot of sort of like, you know, breathless enthusiasm about that kind of uh, quote unquote innovation um, in computing and like how like, you know, the, the computers were bringing us like the the true cutting edge, the, the the final realization of the free market, you know, perfect information realized instantaneously. But like as as much as that sort of automated trading has become more and more a reality uh, in Wall Street and in the way that uh, finance capitalism functions, it hasn't actually brought 
the average person any benefits and so it has really lost its luster and it, it's it's just like oh yeah that's just a fact of the way the system works it's not actually of any real interest to the average person absolutely yeah and like this is a kind of theme that like is is in the article but i think it's maybe not explicitly expounded on but that's um, the technologies we have ended up with have served class interests, very particular class interests. Um, and the technologies that are absent are very broadly the transformative technologies that would have actually transformed the lives of ordinary people in sort of profound ways. Right. And I mean, it. it's... Um, I think that the strong point that Graeber is making here is that the people making these predictions in the 50s and 60s about where technology was going to go were not just you know kooks and wackos like these were these were you know people who had expertise and it was a kind of a general mindset that was considered to be reasonable about where things were going um, and also that it was building on roughly a century of very, very intense um, and wide-reaching innovation that happened, right? Um, that, that, that there was this period from roughly the mid-19th century to the mid-20th century of really incredible technological changes that were happening. Um, and and there was this, this assumption that that was where we were going to go, like that was just going to continue, uh, but it, it didn't. And that's really like, well, why not? That's what, what we're talking about in this article. That's the big question, yeah, is why not? Um, it's, you know, it, it's initially an observation that something didn't turn out the way it was expected to, and then a, a deep, a fairly deep analysis of um, all the factors contributing to that. Um, and as you mentioned, yeah, like he, he says, these were these were serious predictions made by very serious people. You had uh, the Smithsonian Institute um, telling children in the '60s that, like, uh, in their lifetimes, they could expect to go on vacation to Mars and uh, or mm. you know, go to space stations and all this sort of stuff. Like this, uh, yeah, this this wasn't kooky weirdness. This was actually a part of the culture, um, and also that like we around that sort of time as well. Like we used to put like concrete timelines in our science fictions as well that like um it was the, the these predictions were made so confidently that like fiction authors felt they could plant the flag in an actual time frame like this this story is set in the year uh 2006 or whatever or even just like going to like uh, kubrick's 2001 um you know that's that sort of confidence was there and that like compared to like the fiction we have now um instead shies away from making any concrete sort of predictions or situating itself in real timelines and feels more like a parallel reality than a analysis of the future um, or of potential futures. It's actually quite interesting to think on that and then to think back to, you know, Blade Runner 2049 uh -huh. because it does have a specific date in it, but it also explicitly takes place in an alternate timeline, right? It, it, it does take place in this kind of fantasy timeline where the imagined future of the early 1980s just continued, right? Like, they didn't try to, like, bring the Blade Runner timeline into sync with what actually happened since the 80s. It was like, 
no, we're just going to project from this fantasy, you know, 30 years into the future, right? And it really does seem to be uh, on point or uh, uh, on board with what Graber's saying here. Yeah, and I think, like, Blade Runner 2049 is is probably the most daring of of recent uh, fictions in, in making that kind of, in even putting the year in its title, you know? That's um, true, yeah. It's it's by a long stretch the most brave of uh, science fictions to have come out in the recent sort of era in being able to make that kind of um, proclamation right in its own uh, its own title. Yeah, so like Graeber has an interesting sort of line here where he kind of posits that the phenomenon of postmodernism and that kind of cultural sensibility could in fact be a meditation on all the technological changes that never happened, which I think is really sort of compelling. Um, he sort of says that like in a world in which all this, all these predictions had come true, it would be very hard to imagine postmodernism taking root. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's absolutely the case. Uh, you get in my, uh, doctoral research, I was doing, um, a lot of research about the unity of science movement, uh, which was a movement of socialists and scientists um, in the kind of interwar period going into the, through World War II into the early 50s. And the perspective they had on science was so different from the one we have today. Uh, they're sort of confidence in science was was very very different from what we have now and i think that a lot of that shift in attitude towards science has to do with the disappointments that we have uh experienced with regards to technology and technological mm. change but i mean graber even gets into the point to say that it's not just technological change that has has uh, slowed down. It's also like our the rate of of change in scientific thinking uh, has also slowed down. Right, that that th these things have both stagnated. And I mean, of course, technology and science are closely interrelated with one another, but uh, it, it it really is quite um, quite shocking how little real fundamental change has happened in the last 40 years yeah definitely and that's that's kind of like the the parallels with the i suppose with postmodernism or, or with just like culture in general where um horizons of imagination have basically shrunk down to a point um mm -hmm. where like and that's yeah in science and technology and just in culture at large and it feels like nothing's really changing as time moves on. Like I think a lot of um, a lot of people are sort of able to articulate this sense that like the year two thousand feels like it was yesterday. There just hasn't been any, or like we, when you remind people that um, a certain event or like a I don't know a certain album came out fifteen years ago, and they're like, wow, <laughs> like it, it feels like nothing has actually happened in the interim. I think all these these phenomena are kind of entangled with each other. Right. It's yeah, it's that kind of weird thing where, you know, the end of history was declared after the collapse of the Soviet Union. But it feels like we kind of had like a second kind of like freezing of the historical moment in um, with the beginning of the Iraq war that our our sort of 
historical moment has just been kind of stuck in that mode ever since and and there hasn't been this kind of like massive changes so yeah i mean that that's that's an interesting point i don't know how much it has to do with just our normal sort of aging process i'd be i'd be interested to you know go and talk to someone who was quite young at the turn of the millennium and uh ask them what, what how they feel about these changes um, yeah how they perceive their the, uh, perspective yeah how they perceive the same era yeah definitely um so then Grey has this really nice little bit as well about um that he found himself uh marveling at one of the sort of more recent star wars movies um he caught himself thinking oh like wouldn't wouldn't this be really impressive to an audience from the 50s and then he caught himself and thought no it wouldn't be because they would, they presumed we would actually be doing this, not simulating it. Yes, it's a very good point. <laughs> it's an excellent point. Um, yeah, I mean the yeah, it, it's like the art um, of simulation has developed a lot. But yeah, again, it's like if you looked around at the actual cinema goers, it's kind of identical, right? We just have nicer seats now. That's about it. It's all the same sort of stuff, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, even, like, you know, like, 3D and, like, all these kind of weird gimmicky additions to the cinema were things that also happened in the 50s, right? So it's, it's like, even that was, that, that sort of, like, faddish wave of innovation about cinema technology was kind of like a an imitation of a previous wave of uh, technological development but uh here here we go with the postmodernism again right the the ironic repetition the pastiche it's all you know oh disappointing stuff um but yeah and then sort of yeah graber kind of wraps that up with like the the postmodern moment was seems to be a desperate way to take what could otherwise only be felt as a bitter disappointment and to dress it up as a new exciting and epochal moment yeah and i think that um we definitely saw that in uh blade runner 2049 right with wallace like that was absolutely his shtick right that he was pretty much just imitating what someone had done in the past but he made himself out to be this like dynamic genius uh who was just you know changing the world right so He's very like a, a much like a personification of this kind of bullshit of postmodernism. Yeah, that's um, that's an interesting parallel actually. Yeah, um, because that because in in relation then the Tyrell's technology is the kind of glorious um, uh, sort of fifties or sixties era imagination. Yeah, and it, it's really interesting because that movie sort of came out like in sort of like the mid early postmodern period you could call it <laughs> you know like uh, and it's also really interesting because like a lot of people look back at that era of cinema and they're like oh it's so nostalgic but it's like like what is the nostalgia even about because like these are all like miserable like you know you look at all these Ridley Scott movies like aliens or or uh, Blade Runner. It's like these miserable dystopian like futures and and people are like, oh, I feel so nostalgic about it. It's like, well, but this is <laughs> awful. Like, yeah. why? I don't get it. <laughs> the whole you know? point of the rose tinted glasses is that they're supposed to be nice to look through, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, what is it about this that that 
that draws you to it so much as like an object of nostalgia. I mean, Ooh, I can boy. I can appreciate these yeah. movies, but I don't I don't feel nostalgic about them. Mm. It's it's I mean it's and I I mean I think you know you're you're I think it, Graber brings up Jameson and you know Jameson got really deep into the analysis of nostalgia um, as kind of like a compliment to his analysis of postmodernism because I think you can't really think about one without thinking about the other. Um, yeah. We should probably cover some uh, some of that at some point on the show because like um, there's been a bit of a pattern developing in the last couple of episodes of uh, yeah postmodernism um, and nostalgia being big themes and we should probably just actually dive into that um, but that is the sort of next beat that uh, Graeber hits where he points towards Frederick Jameson's uh, postmodernism or the cultural logic of late capitalism in which Jameson proposes postmodernism to be uh, the cultural logic that's appropriate to a new technological phase of capitalism. And this is the sort of like, yeah, even at the roots of postmodernism, there was this nod towards its kind of technological underpinnings. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, for I, I remember reading one of uh, Jameson's more recent books, um, An American Utopia, and uh, he talks a little bit about well, he, he had one book he wrote about science fiction, and then he wrote The American Utopia, which was kind of a related text, um, talking about sort of imaginations of the future. And uh, he he does definitely suggest in those books that there was something about the advent of large-scale information technology and the personal computer that foreclosed on utopian speculation. There's there's something about that technology that put an end to the kinds of speculative science fiction that preceded it, um, and so he he definitely has gone uh, with that kind of angle in terms of of thinking about the relationship of computing technology and postmodernism. But you know what he kind of brought to the scene was. Uh, an analysis of the cultural uh, aspects of postmodernism and kind of connecting those those technological ideas to what was happening in the culture where someone like Mandel that they that Graeber mentions was you know he was just he was an economist um, he was a Marx scholar and he was an economist and he was uh, much more sort of focused on like these like you know changes in the means of production, revolutionizing society in a in a more kind of traditionally Marxist sense, and then people like um, uh, Toffler picked up on what he was doing. Mm, yeah, and like the uh, Mandel being a sort of Marxist scholar does shine through even in, in Graeber's writing here, where uh, Mandel. Uh, sort of like predicted or like pointed towards the this advent of a new sort of information technologies um, and something he, he termed the third technological revolution, which would be the follow on to the agricultural and industrial revolutions. Um, and under Mandel's vision, this um, under this revolution, uh, computers and robots and new energy sources and information technology would basically outright replace industrial work. Um, and this would radically transform the world and be basically like an end of work society. This is kind of the term that's used. Um, and it's, it's interesting to see that like, you know, even in the seventies that like you had, um, these, these, these thinkers really looking towards the, um, the end of work as a big change, a step change in humanity's history. 
it really was in the air at that time. Um, uh, so it says here he was writing in 72, um, which was right before the oil crisis, right? The oil shock, um, when, you know, it was kind of a epochal change in the history of capitalism where you had this kind of ascending post-war capitalism that, that hit a wall in 73 and then after that, you kind of got into this postmodern degenerate period. Um, but I, you know, I was, I wrote my MA thesis about information society theory, and a lot of the stuff that was written was written in like the mid to late 70s. And it was very much of a piece with what Mandel was saying. Uh, there was a real sort of ambiguity in what information society theorists were saying as to whether the future they were describing would be capitalist at all hmm. like there was there was a lot of sort of aspirational stuff about like well maybe the technological change will just sort of like peacefully and quietly get rid of capitalism because of the end of work and like the realization of this new wondrous age of thought um but you know it was it was absolutely in the air uh this kind of enthusiasm about the end of work and about and about a a, a new form of life that would be brought about by information technology yeah it was a it was seen as a very much a revolutionary thing and um some of the thinking around that time seems to have also kind of floated around um and pondered what what happens to working class politics when there is no working class um, mm -hmm. like looking towards yes. a sort of post-revolution uh, kind of future. But then, like, what kind of happened instead, <laughs> instead of that nice thing happening where uh, we got the end of work, um, instead the, the spread of information technologies and the ways of organizing transport and this kind of like mechanization and uh, computerization of the world allowed um, these industrial jobs to simply be outsourced to the global south. Um, which kind of ironically allowed industries to employ less technically sophisticated, you know, forms of production. Yeah, that's right. So it, that was, and I think you definitely see that irony portrayed in the original Blade Runner um, with a kind of strange mishmash of, of technology and kind of like sweatshop labor sort of uh, imagery. Um that there's this kind of strange disorientation about the future being somehow constructed on a ad hoc or less sophisticated technological basis. Yeah, it's a really strange contrast sort of thing. Um, but then uh, Graeber goes on to describe how uh, while industry moved to the global south, uh, in the global north, um, those industries obviously disappeared, but then the working class was then stratified into a kind of lower stratum of service workers who service an upper stratum of basically people who uh, sit in antiseptic bubbles and play with computers, <laughs> knowledge workers. And uh, th that, that's just a tendency that became more pronounced over time, right? Yeah, um, definitely. And this is, um, this is kind of calls back to the stuff in the Californian ideology with the... Um, digital artisan class and their uh, relation to the kind of um, the rest of the sort of working class. Um, and there was this sort of uneasy awareness that the this post-work civilization was basically a huge sham. Um, and that like, it felt it felt like it was technically advanced and it's like, oh, we're 
obviously the relations of work are transforming, but actually it's been transformed by shipping it elsewhere and performing the kind of horrible menial labor under worse conditions. And then I battle with, um, you know, Windows 95 uh, uh, for a living. And it's a bit kind of weird and full of tension and sort of um, feels very kind of fraudulent, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And like, in in one way, when you can take this into account, it's kind of unsurprising that um, we haven't got like swarms of nanobots manufacturing our clothes because it's just easier to shackle an Asian child to a sewing machine than to make the nanobots, right? Like that's that's kind of one yeah, of the big I, explanations for why this shit hasn't come about. <laughs> well, and I, I, I think an interesting thing... Um regarding this is that we have seen this tendency uh, begin to reverse in terms of production where the extent of automation in Chinese factories has has become very high um, where where they 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 are at kind of the the cutting edge of the latest vintage of means of production um, and and there is an implementation of more automation as wages have gone up there, uh, but it took a very long time to get there, and there was a, there was a very long interim where production was happening on a on a much less sophisticated basis. Mm. And um, bit of a sort of exercise for the listener. Um, imagine that, yeah, like capital gained a lot of runway by moving. Um, operations to the global south and now kind of the global south there is is catching up to where uh conditions were in the north before and yeah the uh, chinese factories are becoming more automated and we're kind of re repeating some of the same stuff but big question where do they go after this there isn't there isn't another global south to flee to uh, in order to extract more value so what's in the future hmm. um yeah leave that yeah, as a thinking I mean, exercise for the reader <laughs> But Graeber moves on to kind of ask, like, well, why did this, in, in light of all these things, why didn't why didn't this explosion of technological growth happen? And there were kind of two, two possibilities. Um, either the predictions were unrealistic, in which case we need to ask, like, how so many people got it so wrong and so many smart people got it wrong. Um, or they were realistic, in which case, what, what happened to block that progress? Yeah, and I think the the interesting thing that Graeber's doing in this essay is posing that question, right? That because the the assumption that they were unrealistic is so all pervasive that it is a little bit radical to ask this question at all. Right? Definitely, yeah. Um, it's it's all seen as very kitschy, right? That that like any of this talk about you know very fast technological change going into the future from the 60s onward is seen in a in a in a very kind of like ironic light you know uh and so to ask it ask the question with a straight face is is kind of the radical thing that graber is doing here mm, yeah and I mean, he, he brings it up in the very beginning, the kind of like, when you do bring up these questions, it tends to be brushed off with a a little bit of a chuckle and a like, oh, that, Jet that Jetsons stuff, you, you you really expected that, you know, that kind of uh, mm. dismissal. Um, but no, this this is, these are important questions. Like this is, 
a very real phenomenon in our recent history that like needs a lot more attention than it's been given. So he kind of moves on to kind of say that like the classic explanation is that the expectations were unrealistic and that it was the competition between the United States and the Soviet Union that was giving the impression of much more progress happening than was actually happening. And that, you know, I've even heard this kind of put this way a couple of times before that like space exploration is actually quite inefficient, but because the United States and the Soviet Union were both pioneer societies driven by this, uh, these kind of sort of myths of endless expansion, they were locked in this kind of race to, uh, to keep those myths going. Um, which eventually hit the skids. That's the kind of common explanation. Yeah, that's um, certainly something I remember hearing from my advisor uh, here in Japan uh, at, at university was that he he, re- he referred to this kind of pioneer mentality um, in trying to explain uh, the sort of technological development of the United States and the Soviet Union um, and, you know, his point was like, well, but Japan is not a frontier society, so we don't have that kind of intellectual or, or scientific ambition. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I think even for him, uh, his enthusiasm or, or uh, appreciation of, of the innovative character of, of American technology has been dampened considerably mm. uh, since the election of Trump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's sustained the U.S. brand so heavily that e- even someone who spent a lot of his career trying to understand, you know, why um, the United States tech industries were more successful than Japanese ones, or I should say their software industries were more successful than Japanese ones in terms of their production methods and their mentality uh, feel, feels like, you know, he needs to reassess deeply uh, his, his way of thinking about the United States after the election of Trump. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so, like... These, these myths were in place, certainly, but, like, it doesn't really tell you much about the feasibility of the project, because, like, everything's always kind of driven by myths anyway. Um, and that, like, for a child that was growing up in 1900, like, the predictions about what the 1960s were going to be like were pretty much on point. Like, mm-hmm. y- you did end up having submarines and rockets and radio and television and... Uh, all that sort of stuff. But then why is it that, like, for a kid growing up in the 1960s, pretty much all of their predictions were uh, were hollow, that they didn't come true. So the, the, it, I don't think it, the yeah. classic explanation isn't enough. We got tricorders, but that's it. Yeah, right. really, really expensive tricorders. That's <laughs> like, that's kind of where we're at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And um, there's a kind of an interesting turn here where uh, Graeber points out that even while these predictions were being made in the 60s, the kind of material basis for them actually being carried out was starting to erode. Now, you started to see a general slowdown in scientific production and uh, technical innovation uh, in the 50s and 60s and such. And they, they came at the end of this, like, this last spurt of genuinely new technology was in the 1950s with uh, the microwave, lasers, uh, the pill... And I think what was plastics in the 50s as well, or am I misremembering? Yeah. Uh, and they were like genuinely new, really, really innovative, brand new technologies. Um, but then from there on, 
technological development has tended to be recombination of existing technologies or the commercialization of existing stuff. So TV being the example of the latter, where the television has been around since the 1920s, but it wasn't until about the 50s or so that it got properly uh, productized and um, marketed to um, to ordinary people. And then the, the combining stuff is just, well, if you've got a car and you've got a phone, well, and you put them together and you've got a car phone, woo, you know, and that's that's the innovation. But like, it's, yeah. it's not, you know, it's just, it's a combination thing. Um, and I, I remember actually uh, talking once to a friend of mine um, uh, whose uh, uncle actually worked at Sony. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just like talking to them about like the gap in time between the development of a technology and its commercial deployment it was really weird. Like it was like because like Blu-ray was you know, at the time that we were talking was like a newly commercialized product, but it had actually been around for a very long time inside Sony and just had never been brought to market. Um, yeah, so, this is yeah. Um, this is an idea that's, I think, I've, so I'm, I'm sort of starting to realize that like a lot of the insights in this article are providing for me like explanations of like snippets of conversation I've heard over the decades, you know, like, um, there's there's always been this received wisdom that um, uh, either the military or giant corporations are kind of piling up technology behind the scenes and then trickling it out to consumers. That's been a meme for a long time. And we're kind of seeing it here, too, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think Graeber gets into this a little bit in terms of sort of the mentality within corporations about marketability deciding so many things and like the hesitancy about deploying new technologies um that, that there's there's this very like because of the way patent law works and because of um you know concerns about whether something will sell or not um there's a there's a very uh, strong timidness um among uh, the actual like developers and marketers of these technologies. So going back to the Blu-ray example, it could have been like Blu-ray was developed and proven out uh, in the lab quite a quite a while before it was uh, deemed to be kind of worth deploying. And it only got to that point once it was like uh, well beyond that kind of threshold of confidence that they were, mm -hmm. by yes. the time it was deployed, they were absolutely certain it would take off. Um, there was no risk right. involved, really. Like, um, yeah, it was just a matter of like, oh, is HD DVD going to survive, or is Blu-ray going to survive, right? And like, that is that is a rather trivial uh, sort of marketing issue, right? Uh, and these are themes that Graeber picks up on towards the back of the um, the article as well, which we'll we'll kind of loop back around to uh, if I can remember that uh, Blu-ray example. Um, but he then sort of talks about how like the rate of progress was actually starting to drop. Um, like the scientific kind of papers being published were starting to taper off, but that the space race was giving the impression of accelerated progress, uh, which brings him on to Alvin Toffler, who in 1970 produced, uh, produced a book called Future Shock, in which he argued that basically all of the social problems of the 60s, well, problems in quotes, because this guy is a, an unapologetic conservative, um, the problems of the 60s could be traced back to the increasing pace of technological change and that the 
constant stream of scientific breakthroughs were, in Toffler's mind, uh, transforming the sort of basis for daily existence and leaving Americans without like a clear idea of what life was or what they were going to do. Um, the example he kind of points towards is uh, examples of like relating to the family, the kind of nuclear family. So like uh, the pill and in, vi- in vitro fertilization and test tube babies and such uh, were threatening to make the idea of motherhood obsolete, again, from Toffler's perspective. Yeah, um, and, and again, it's like he thought that that was a bad thing. Mm, he uh, did, Somehow. Yeah. <laughs> I have a rather different view of this issue, but uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's that cl- kind of classic thing where, like, conservatives take, you know, an idea that Marxists came up with, and then they're like, but actually, this is a bad thing, right? Like, so, you know, that kind of... Marxist enthusiasm for technological power and and the the power of the means of production being revolutionized, revolutionizing society. Uh, those kinds of ideas uh, they get picked up by uh, people who are much more reactionary and spin them in a, in a very different way. Mm. Yeah, and so this introduces a kind of theme that goes through the rest of the article where. Um, New technologies, and especially technologies which threaten to be very revolutionary and to kind of have major impacts on how people live, um, scare the shit out of conservatives and make them very skittish about what's going to happen to society. And then they start to push back and start to try to direct the development away from those technologies and more towards technologies which are more conducive to keeping the current charade going or um, just minimizing the threat to the social order. Yeah. Uh, it's like this, this article has been a bit of a revelation for me in that kind of regard that like, because the, the lack of development in these technologies kind of feels a lot like a kind of an accident. And that's, that's kind of why, that's kind of why Graeber is asking these questions, but then to kind of realize that it's in many ways actually designed that like, this is a, mm-hmm. this is a class power thing. That um, yeah. a batch of technologies threatened to, uh, for example, emancipate women, you know, or to uh, do any any yeah. kind of like transformative, the horror. the horror of it, yeah, <laughs> or but any any yeah. kind of transformative thing you could imagine, like, um, and that people pushed back against it on the basis of class interests. Yeah, and I mean it's important to note that you know, as kind of Peter Fraze mentions in in for futures that. There's nothing naturally emancipatory about these technologies, but no. they do offer emancipatory possibilities, right? And so... Those uh, emancipatory possibilities are what uh, authors like Mandel pick up on. They see it as, like, these technologies could enable the end of work, they could enable major transformation that we live, uh, whereas Toffler imagines these technologies as just being dangerous, that they... Um, they're going to disrupt society. We need to put institutions in place which will uh, vet and assess emerging technologies and even ban technologies. Which, uh, and the way it's written down in the piece is that like technologies which are likely to be too socially disruptive. Yeah, he kind of takes the idea of like, um, you know, that very sort of facile idea that like the pill somehow is going to achieve the aims of feminism all by itself. But then he like takes that that idea seriously, right? Like, <laughs> like oh no! <laughs> I like laughing at this guy. It's fun. <laughs> it's just yeah. so it's so silly. He's... Like from from where from where I'm standing right now, it's just I just I, I can't sympathize with it. 
It's definitely part of the enjoyment of um, writing about this topic when I was doing my MA thesis was going back and reading this old futurology and sort of being like, huh, this is all really quaint. Um, yeah. Very silly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, kind of like in the previous episode how we were uh, talking about like the uh, that, that kind of like optimistic technological determinism feels very quaint now. Um, it's the same vibe coming off this software guy. Um, but there's, there's kind of an interesting turn here where, uh, unfortunately, basically as soon as Toffler publishes this book, all of the exponential trends he's been pointing towards just kind of flatten out and stop, which is kind of brilliant. Yeah, it's a uh, very, uh, deflating. <laughs> very, yeah. And, um, but, uh, I do want to mention one thing, which is that, um, you know, Toffler, I believe, was writing in, yeah, 1970, and it's not, um, he was hardly alone, <clears throat> excuse me, he was hardly alone in his misplaced vision of the future at that point in time, because I feel like he was reacting to a certain view of the future that came out of the 60s. Um, and saw a kind of social revolution happening, right? And this kind of view of the future that was very optimistic and about liberation was widespread on the left as well. It wasn't until like 72, 73, when you had this, you know, the oil shocks and this disastrous collapse of the left and like, you know, it there was a there was a real like sense if uh, if you read like um, Jefferson Cowie's uh, "Staying Alive," uh, which is about um, working class history in the seventies, um, there's a real sense at this point in time that like humanity hit a wall in '73. Yeah. You know, and and there was this huge hangover that came after it, but. You know, Toffler, I feel like, was kind of, like, caught up in that wave. He wasn't really this wild-eyed dreamer that was at the edge of things. It was more like he was just a conservative reacting to the general mentality around him. Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, and, it's it, yeah, I suppose in that context, it's hard to blame him for it. Um, but uh, Graeber takes a bit of a sidebar as well to kind of comment on how this perception of accelerating progress, and like Toffler uses the uh, term acceleration in his writing, and it seems kind of unfortunate, but like from that kind of perspective, it did seem kind of reasonable that like you had people who were alive to see um, or had like a sort of a memory of like transitions from the horse drawn cart to the automobile and the airplane to the rocket. And there, there really was, like, in, in the literal sense of acceleration, there was, like, an enormous change in the uh, accelerative thrust that human beings could achieve in that time frame. And um, mm -hmm. it seemed reasonable to presume that that would just continue and that, like, oh, God, we can, we can send a rocket to the moon in uh, X amount of time. Like, in a couple of decades, we're going to be able to send a rocket to Jupiter in even shorter time, you know? Um, but that, di that didn't actually kind of play out. Like, the... The speed record that was set by the uh, Apollo 10 crew in uh, 1969 remains the top speed ever achieved by humans today. Um, yeah, and uh, I think the interesting thing here is that in 
place of this kind of general accelerative uh, view of progress um, that humanity is going through, uh, we now have Moore's Law, right? Moore's Law is kind of like the sad um, leftover version of this general <laughs> idea of accelerative thrust, right? Yeah. Because like Moore's Law is kind of like the thing that underpins ideas about like the singularity coming. Um, you know, it, it gives us that kind of progressive vision of the future, uh, at least progressive in the eyes of some people. Uh, but as a general kind of idea, um, I feel like this accelerative thrust or, or this idea of, of ever-increasing technological pace uh, has become mostly discredited. Mm, pretty much, yeah. And um, actually, it's worth noting that, like, um, in some circles, at least, Moore's Law is now kind of actually accepted to be to be dead and gone. Um, yeah, I read, yeah, I read yeah. a paper recently, uh, just this week, um, I think it was from MIT, or it could have been Harvard, um, but it was kind of giving a perspective on just a kind of an overview of where they thought uh, AI research should go in the next couple of decades. And um, one of the points they brought out very explicitly was how to develop further AI technology without Moore's Law, that um, they had they were now presuming that it was gone and that um, mm. there wouldn't be any more gains from uh, transistor counts, that like uh, gains in performance would now from now on come from uh, like actual optimization of software and such. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's also fallen on its arse in the same way that the uh, physical speed <laughs> thing did. Um, yeah, and it's interesting that like um, even stuff like uh, technologies like Concord and such have been rolled back. Like there was that brief sort of promise of like, oh, there'll be faster civilian transport, and even that kind of just kind of petered out <laughs> and came to a sad little stop. Yeah, it's it's just weird to think that like stuff I was le uh, reading about in books when I was like eight that even most of that stuff hasn't landed like still um yeah or it's all definitely. it's always barely on the cusp of of arriving um yeah really disappointing stuff <laughs> <laughs> so i mean like in the face of all this uh toffler just basically sort of persisted and re retooled his analysis and he um he published another book in 1980 uh, called the third wave um, which is basically lifted from Mandel's third technological yeah, revolution. Much st straight from Mandel. Right, yeah. but it was yeah. stripped of its left revolutionary trappings because Mandel thought that the this technological change in the information age would be bring an end to capitalism, but Toffler thought it would strengthen capitalism. Yes, yeah. and that was the big shift, right? Um, because in the in the period when, in the, in the 70s, um, when people talked about these kinds of like technological changes, um, as I mentioned before, there was a real ambiguity about whether capitalism would continue at all. Um, and that made a very distinct shift in the 80s towards this new discourse that was tied into neoliberalism and that argued that no, you know, these this technological change was going to intensify capitalism, not abolish it. Um, and, and, you know, I guess you kind of see the apotheosis of that in the the trading technologies, computer trading technologies we were talking about earlier, um, autom automated trading, especially when you think about, you know, in nowadays they don't even do this. But when that technology was first getting off the ground, 
it was a matter of cannibalizing uh, physics programs for mathematicians or like, you know, people who have been trained to a reasonable degree in advanced mathematics in order to simply develop these trivial technologies of finance capitalism that were doing nothing more than speculating for the profit of rich people, right? So it's a very sort of like clear image of like these people who were in physics programs and were going to do fundamental physics research or work on these big kind of technological projects uh, ended up working in these these very sort of empty speculative ventures. Mm, very much so. Um, and like it's kind of worth maybe pondering like how many innovations or discoveries have been lost out on because um, like a, a physics grad could make more money in high fre high frequency trading than they could by actually Yeah, and I mean, pursuing. now you yeah. can't even get a job in that business if you're a physics grad. There's just no job. <laughs> because they, they have specialists trained in doing this kind of math now, so they don't need physics physics uh, PhDs anymore. <laughs> this is a... Um... It's a really shitty dystopia we live in. Like, it's it's not even a good <laughs> yeah. one. It's a, it's a boring dystopia. Yeah, um, yeah. Oh, such such mundane, horrible stuff <laughs> to live through. <laughs> yeah, and I I mean I've actually talked to people who work in that kind of um, algorithm development for the finance sector, and they 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 don't like it. They're not happy about doing that job. <laughs> I I actually kind of hope that a lot of those guys are just taking their employers for a ride. Like they're just fleecing them for like, and they, they, they like pretend to do all these highly advanced kind of um, algorithms and stuff, but it's actually just a, a couple of nested for loops. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and they're just well, catching the Well, as far checks. as I understand it, it's actually just a large scheme to uh, further de the development of Haskell. Um, <laughs> God, those those know. Haskell guys are feeding from one hell of a pork barrel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Haskell and like APL and all these weird functional languages were they ended up getting used in 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 finance. So I, I love that bizarre stuff. Go. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, so like. Toffler kind of moves on in 1990 to become an advisor to Newt Gingrich, who uh, who came up in the previous episode as um, public enemy number one. And they were basically sort of teamed up to like, and Gingrich was calling for uh, America to move on from what he called like an antiquated materialist industrial base and to become a uh, new free market information age third wave civilization. Yes. Um, and like Gingrich called himself a explicitly a conservative futurologist, uh, which kind of might sound contradictory, but like not really, because like these for these guys, like for him and Toffler, um, futurology was never actually about progress. It was always about um, reading the tea leaves to um, try and solve the problem of technology, not to kind of advance it. Yeah, and it. it um... Sorry, uh, Graeber kind of brings up the example of Auguste Comte uh, here uh, as an example of someone who uh, looked at the tremendous social changes of the 19th century. And, and Comte was a, a student of Saint-Simon, who was kind of, you could say, probably like the father of information, not... Uh, like information society theory, this kind of that brand of futurology 
or socialism that is very interested in the power of technological change to revolutionize society. Um, so Comte was a, a student of Saint-Simon, uh, but uh, like some socialists of his time, he tried to kind of come up with a alternative to the Catholic Church as a way of kind of reining this stuff in and creating an orderly, stable society. Um, yeah, so he... He sort of wanted to um, come to kind of uh, observe that, like, the feudal order had developed Catholic theology as basically the perfect system for ruling over that time, um, but that the sciences had no similar institutions. So he called for a new science of sociology, where sociologists would effectively be priests of this kind of new uh, religion of society. Yes. Uh, yeah. So that would bring order to society and... Uh... Uh, kind of rein in the chaotic possibilities of, of, of new technology. Yeah, there's there's definite parallels with Toffler there. And um, uh, Graeber observes that Toffler was less ambitious than Comte in that uh, there, were, there was no sort of way in which these futurologists were going to serve as priests of anything. No, I mean, they were just uh, looking for a... a sweet consulting gig somewhere right i mean i guess you know if you wanted to point to a new priest class that corresponds to the the sociologist that Comte had in mind it would be consultancies right mm. <laughs> yeah think tank uh people but um in, and gingrich had another another guy uh that's interesting to uh, contrast with uh, Toffler, a guy called George Gilder, who was similarly obsessed with technology and social change. But um, he seemed to be more optimistic than Toffler in that he, he actually kind of more embraced the radical vision of Mandel's uh, third technological revolution. And he, he has this kind of line about like the rise of computers being the overthrow of matter. Yeah, this was a really... Um pervasive idea at the time i don't know if gilder was the originator of this idea but i definitely saw this a lot in the information society theory that i read for my ma thesis like um i studied mainly the work of a guy called yoneji masuda uh and he was actually a christian japanese christian uh, if i recall correctly and uh and his ideas about what the information society would look like were certainly colored by theological ideas. There's, there's no doubt. Mm. Um, yeah, there's a strong yeah. theological kind of bend to this where um, in, in the information age, value will emerge from the minds of entrepreneurs in the same way that the universe emerged from the mind of God. Um, yeah, it's really, really kind of strange. Uh, and, and, and in fact, it, this even got into Marxist discourse with the discussions about um, immaterial labor, um, material versus immaterial labor. I feel like that really, that was, that kind of discussion was really kind of, um, it grew out of this kind of information society theory uh, and this, this idea that like matter was being overcome by the new economy yeah, it's it's interesting stuff, and it kind of like it, it. It seems to be an idea that's pervaded a lot of of um, of media and um, just a lot of thinking for the last couple of decades. 
So Graeber kind of wraps up this section by pointing out that um, this kind of move away from investment in rockets and robots and a move towards um, investment in information technology was already underway long before Toffler and Gilder started writing. Um, and that the, the issues they highlighted, I mean, issues in quotes again, because uh, I don't perceive them to be actual issues like, um, you know, uh, social change and such. Um, those issues were already kind of being thought about by people in power. Um, this, this, these were already ideas that were kind of well, uh, well thought about by um, statesmen and captains of industry who had already seen the need to guide technological development in directions which didn't challenge the existing order. Yeah, it was my impression from reading this stuff um, is that it was partially like these these futurologists or um, information society theorists were partially employed in order to come up with um, scenarios for marketing new technologies, um, like you know the the question of like how can we make computers a part of daily life was one that they were very interested in, right? Um, so you'd, you'd have these ideas like, oh, well, housewives can share recipes over information networks, right? Like um, this kind of proto-social network ideas that, that were coming about. Um, all kinds of little schemes like that that they would come up with. But uh, also it was about how can we integrate these technologies into a kind of non-threatening vision of the future? Uh, yeah, definitely. And it, it was explicitly to foreclose on any possibility of uh, large change um, and like radical change that would alter, alter the structure of society. That was very much foreclosed on. Um, so this, this is kind of a part of the essay where it would it would be kind of useful if there were subheadings because um, yes, the next the next sort of section breaks kind of does a little a little about face and kind of breaks away from what the what had come before it. Um, I, I I should mention one thing though before we move on. Uh, actually, uh, one thing that you do see a lot in the information society theory of the mid seventies or so is that uh, you know aside from Toffler. Um, a lot of the information society theorists did have some vision of liberation, like, you know, this kind of freedom from matter uh, ideas that you, you saw in Gilder. Uh, but they also had this really weird relationship to, say, the military-industrial complex, where they understood that the technologies they saw as the kind of automatic path to liberty um, were being developed by these like, you know, large sort of military contractors and so on. Uh, but they also had a lot of like anxiety and fear about these organizations. So it's it kind of like they were patronized by these organizations but they also were they also had these like really ambivalent feelings about them and they kind of had all these strange strategies for kind of evading the question or or obscuring their own relationship to the people that they were afraid about uh so it's this really contradictory uh position that they were in 
uh, which I think became resolved in a sense by you you know in in a you know the kind of successor to Toffler is like um, uh, Thomas Friedman, right? Right. Um, yeah. Thomas Friedman was the kind of like latter day information society theorist hmm. and his resolution of this dilemma between on the one hand viewing the liberation that could be brought about by technology and on the other hand being afraid of the kind of perversions of this technology that could be brought about by those seeking to use it for destruction and the preservation of hierarchy uh, for Thomas Freeman, that's all resolved because you just get 100% on board with power and hierarchy. Um, you become like the leading, you know, imperialist, uh, jingoist promoter at the same time that you are promoting extreme free market capitalism and promoting you know, this kind of Toffler-esque idea that uh, capitalism is invigorated by technological change. Uh, so all those kinds of contradictions you saw in the 70s just kind of collapse when you get into the person of someone like Thomas Friedman, who is nothing more than a mouthpiece for power um, and at the same time a, a kind of conservative futurologist. Yeah, so is, is it just... Um... Is it just cognitive dissonance like for these people that like they're they're just unable to reconcile those two things um, or those those many different sort of factors and like I suppose for some of them they do explicitly tack right afterwards like they 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 just kind of um, decide to get on board with the um, the hierarchy and the power. Yeah, I feel like that was generally the direction things went. That that this kind of I think in the 70s, there was still this kind of ambiguity where the Marxist idea that the uh, forces of production and relations of production could could be in contradiction or that there could be there could be um, a social revolution provoked by technological change that would upset the ruling order uh, was still at the back of the mind of all of these information society theorists. But once you get into like the 90s, there's they've just drunk the Kool-Aid completely and like there like there is no separation between technological revolution and ever deepening and expanding capitalism. Hmm. Right. Yeah. And also ever deepening and expanding and increasingly sophisticated and large imperialism and militarism right like these things are just absolutely collapsed to each other uh i mean the militarism thing i think there were some libertarians who were you know not on board with that but for someone like thomas freeman there's just it's all one you know american empire capitalism technological revolution they all mean the same thing yeah uh, that um that that just that that way of thinking is just I, I don't know how to grapple with it. Like, it's just so alien. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was going to write a paper about Thomas Friedman once, and I read about five of his books. But at a certain point, uh, the urge to kill myself became so powerful <laughs> that I had to put it down and give up. Because yeah. I just couldn't. I couldn't absorb the toxicity of his bullshit uh, much longer. Um, but, but, you know, an important thing to note about the way that 
he writes is that he just kind of goes around and talks to corporate executives and like sort of corporate think tank people um, and and just sort of gets their received wisdom and distills it down into a book or something like that, right? So um, very much integrated into into the kinds of um, decision-making uh, groups that uh, Graeber is talking about here uh, as like these people who are trying to steer things away from disruptive social change and ensure the perpetuation of the system. Mm. Yeah. And so there's a bit here where um, Graeber sort of briefly touches on one of the components of the title of the, um, of the article uh, where he talks a little bit about uh, Marx's kind of labor theory of value and um, the tendency for the rate of profit to decline as um, the labor is mechanized. Um, and that if if you look at the kind of um, tendency of capital to move its um, labor, the move its facilities overseas to uh, exploit cheaper labor, this uh, theory kind of like it's it's a theory that economists have kind of batted back and forth on for uh, over a hundred years, and um, when you look at it through this lens, it's actually like okay, this does kind of confirm the theory that. Um, the capitalists didn't invest in robot factories because um, that kind of would have damaged their profits because it would have actually eliminated labor input and therefore eliminated value from which they could derive the profit. And instead, finding cheaper sources of labor, finding more labor to exploit was the way they went. Yeah, and um, I feel like Graeber's kind of giving capital the, the capitalist planners a little bit too much credit here in 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 uh sort of appreciating the nuances of marx's value theory but uh <laughs> you can just reason from like the firm level or the level of sort of chambers of commerce um in terms of making evaluations of whether to invest in automation or whether to uh, invest in establishing trade relationships with impoverished countries that can pro provide uh, cheap labor and kind of figure out the calculus just from there, right? Uh, because, um, you know, really, if you look at the dynamics that drive firms in competition, uh, given, uh, you know, technological change over time, um it's it's always easier to sweat labor more than to uh invest in a new vintage of technology if you can get away with it so the real driver of automation as we've said before is not capital it is labor because by putting themselves in the way of that sort of intensified exploitation, workers force capital to invest in automation, right? Uh, but what Graeber is saying here is capital had an excellent opportunity to not do that, and they took it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there was, a, there was a big escape hatch just, just there, uh, ready to go. Um, and again, worth pondering, like when... When the pressure builds up to that point again, like where where, where do they go? There there isn't any more um, any more sort of cheap labor to exploit. Yeah, and if if you actually look at the history of profitability, 
uh, profit rates. Um, you can see in the period when offshoring happened, there was a, a brief sort of recovery of profitability um, that happened, uh, which was called, uh, by mainstream economists, it was called the Great Moderation, um, because they felt like the the wild uh, swings and economic chaos of the 1970s had been overcome. Uh, and you, we had like, maybe, you know, things weren't booming amazingly, but at least we'd managed to stabilize everything. That was kind of like the ruling idea at that time. And to the extent that that happened, you can say that it was probably caused by um, this increasing exploitation of sweated labor uh, in the global south, which did bring the the profit rates back up again. Yeah, and um, I think around that time as well, there was this kind of um, idea that they were starting to get towards a stable society that would last forever, which is um, actually a big theme in something we'll end up covering probably sometime in the first half of next year, um, uh, all watched over by Machines of Loving Grace, I think touches yes. on those ideas uh, quite a bit. The um, the illusion that you could create this kind of stable society that would um, in just indefinitely kind of reproduce itself in a, uh, not, a not a booming sense, but just kind of very steadily ticking upwards. Yeah, um, and I, I think when people look back on the 90s with nostalgia... Um, that is the mentality that they long for. Mm, yeah. Right? Um, and um, I feel like we bring it up every episode, but it's it's that end of history idea, you know, that at that time it seemed like it was all over and things had settled into a... And, and you know what, from, from the perspective of somebody in the, like, global north at that time, yeah, actually pretty prosperous, you know, seemed, seemed like a fairly okay sort of existence to uh, carry on indefinitely for many people not for everyone of course but like um so the, the nostalgia for that era is kind of understandable um especially in contrast to the fucking chaos we live in now <laughs> right uh i mean I, we may be a lot more woke now but uh maybe we're not we don't feel super comfortable with that all the time <laughs> no definitely no. not um <laughs> yeah um so that, that 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 sort of little bit of the essay then stops again and then there's another bit where it's kind of just onto a different topic entirely um where the kind of like uh talking about the pace of scientific advancement slowing in the 50s and 60s just kind of restating the point um but the rivalry between the us and the soviets uh giving the appearance of acceleration um and this all created the uh the appearance of prosperity and kind of growth um that was apparently like uh like us planners in particular kind of really put a lot of pressure on to apply existing technologies to consumer goods and to um, create a lot of like neat gadgets and stuff that um, could be bought by consumers to uh, uh, put across this idea of burgeoning prosperity and guaranteed progress that would uh, undercut the appeal of working class politics. Like that's the explicit yeah, aim here. There, There's no question that this happened, right? Um, uh you know, the great society measures in addition to that kind of uh, focus on expanding consumerism was, it was a very intentional thing. The, the, there, there was a consensus in this quote unquote like forest period after uh, World War II where 
it was assumed that that the government had to do things to appease workers to avoid the threat of revolution um and that was the form that it took right yeah uh, and it's kind and, of um it's kind of hard to imagine from uh, from where we sit now but like um at the, at the at the time though that was a very real sort of threat like the soviet union wasn't seen as a crazed basket case like it was uh, towards the end of its life but uh in the the 50s and 60s it was seen as like highly innovative um and like dangerously ambitious from the perspective of the united states the the soviets had absolutely incredible growth year on year um and many of the u.s planners actually suspected that the soviet system did work better um for a while there was like a sense of doubt as to like Oh shit! Actually, maybe they have cracked it, and uh, and we're the losers here. Um, yeah, and and I mean, like you know, uh, well, as as Graeber says here, like the Apollo program was very much a response to Soviet, uh, you know, science and technology efforts. It was not, it was not something that emerged organically out of the U.S. system. Right? Yeah, the um, the Apollo moon landing was the greatest historical achievement of the Soviet Union. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, but he he then points towards the um, like the, the the Soviet bureaucracy was like it was a bureaucracy for sure, but it was also a it was filled with bureaucrats who did dream big, big, astounding dreams. Um, they had real crazy ambitions that were like um, uh, they, they they especially make the kind of U.S. ambitions to uh, consumer culture kind of quaint and laughable in comparison, like. Um, even up until the 80s, um, the Soviets were planning to end hunger by harvesting like algae from lakes and to solve energy by launching solar collectors into orbit, which is like really cool in yeah, comparison. Yeah, <laughs> like I feel like there was a certain extent to which, you know, as the Soviet Union degenerated, um, they tried to do the consumerism thing and I imitate what the U.S. was doing, but they weren't able to do it successfully. Uh, you know, they, they basically felt that they lost their social mandate. And so consumerism was was kind of a response they did. But even in the late periods, yeah, they still they still did have a lot of ambitious projects. Uh, and I was just, you know, struck by this image of um, I forget which book it was in, but I was reading about um, the the leaders of the Soviet Union, Bolsheviks in uh in the civil war period and like you know being in the city that is is just like kind of ruined and 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 uh it, it, you know the, the the civil war was just such a hellscape right the country had been reduced to almost nothing by uh all of this conflict uh but the the leaders of the communist party even in the midst of all of that destruction they were still dreaming about, you know, this incredible future that would be brought about by socialism. Um, you know, they were still dreaming about a country that was entirely electrified when people were just like starving all around them and everything was falling apart. So there was a very, very strong um, uh, impetus to realize these these ideas that they had and and it did kind of exist throughout the entire uh, period of the Soviet Union. I, I feel to some extent that uh, Graeber talks up the Soviet Union a little bit more than is deserved because he understates the extent to which Soviet 
technological development was dependent on um, espionage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's this is a thing that we're going to get into when we talk about Red Plenty, but um, there certainly was a period in the 60s when the socialist bloc was trying to outdo the capitalist countries in terms of technological innovation on their own terms and not simply by stealing things from from the united states right yeah um, definitely and like i think i think graber's thing is more about like the the it's the ambition it's what's inside that counts you know it's the um the the spirit and the ambition is the admirable thing there um yeah, because you look at the attempts to solve world hunger now, which are barely even attempts. Yeah, and pretty laughable. They're just pathetic. I mean, it's all like, oh, like, you know, just these ridiculous little educational programs. And I mean, actually, there there's a really good essay by um, uh, Franco Moretti about he did a discourse analysis of the changes in the language used by um it was the world bank yeah so the world bank was set up basically i mean or the world bank evolved under the sort of threat of communism as an institution to do sort of capitalist based or or u.s-led international development right um, to, to provide a response to this kind of ambition that the, the Soviets brought about, you know, lifting uh, the global south or or the uh, post-colonial countries out of poverty and bringing them to the level of, of the imperialist countries. And it's very interesting because in the early period of the uh, World Bank, um, the language that is used is very sort of engineering language about objectives and things achieved. Mm. Whereas as as time goes on, the language becomes progressively more and more vague and sort of couched in this kind of managerial bullshit. Um, and I, I feel like we've really kind of hit the peak of, of that as far as our like efforts to end world hunger go, which are just kind of like... PR campaigns and little like tech bro schemes here and there to deploy this or that, you know, widget uh, and and kind of philanthropic ventures by very rich people and Bono going around doing his thing like that. It feels like it's all very sad compared to these things that, um, you know, were imagined under socialism that were like, Oh no! Like we're actually gonna solve this problem, right? Like, like you know, it, 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 there were things that they did that were kind of like astounding, right? That like, oh, we're gonna educate the entire population of these countries, right? Something that would have been considered absurd in the past. No, they actually did it, right? Yeah, um, and they they went from like just really insane kind of like feudal destitution to um, being like a real serious contender on the world stage in a handful of decades um so yeah you can understand why the american ruling class was sweating yeah right? definitely and again this this kind of thing about like observing a trend and then extrapolating it and presuming that it'll keep going and be like oh this is kind of scary but um anyway that sort of all wraps up with the americans winning the space race and then they they, they start to no longer really take the competition seriously 
and um, capitalism sort of reverts back to technological development modes more in line with its um, decentralized and free market imperatives, such as uh, privately funded research into marketable products, uh, for example, personal computers. Yeah, this was the period when you had the establishment of institutions like Xerox Park, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, which was kind of a, a pioneer effort at establishing like very private sector led research. Mm, um, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't actually very effective at pre constructing marketable products, uh, but <laughs> it, <laughs> it was kind of a pioneering institution, both in computing technology, personal computing technology, and also just in that that tendency to move away from uh, state led research into private sector led research into consumer products yeah definitely um but uh graber contends that like realistically the big government projects didn't really go away they uh, instead shifted to military research um weapons communications surveillance and uh, overall sort of general security concerns and um he kind of points out as well that like this is this is kind of an important um shift because it kind of explains why we don't have robot factories because 95% of all robotics research goes through the Pentagon. Yeah, and that's a very good point, right? That uh, these robots are designed for combat operations, not for work. <laughs> yeah, and like that alone sort of explains why like, we're going to get killer robots a lot sooner than we do uh, robots for elder care. Yeah, I mean, we have very primitive robots for elder care in Japan, but... Uh, you know, they don't have the kind of budget the Pentagon has. <laughs> I'll <laughs> yeah. say that much. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and this kind of marks a shift in Graeber's analysis into kind of looking at the, um, the shapes of research and development and kind of how, uh, like, the directions of funding really affect the kind of outcomes here where... Um, like when, when you ask the question, where's the flying cars, where are the robot maids, where's all the transformative stuff? Well, the kind of like base answer is that like none of it was funded. <laughs> Instead, uh, technologies of control and technologies um, that could be used to uh, undermine working class politics were funded instead. It's the kind of simple answer to that. Yeah. So it. You know, I kind of brought up the, the 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 issue of Xerox Park and the personal computer and and that kind of market driven thing. But he's saying here that, well, that was part of the story, but the real story was the development of kind of surveillance and control technologies that were not consumer technologies, right? Yeah, um, the kind of like. Um it, the broad tent of information technologies, which uh, ended up being kind of really useful for surveillance, for work discipline, for social control. Um, they then enabled the financialization of capital, which uh, ended up fueling indebtedness in the general population. And also like automation eroding job security, all kind of pointed towards the uh, destruction of effective working class politics towards the end of the century. Yeah, and I, I think here he's not necessarily talking about automation so much as he's talking about um uh what what do you call them like um there's a special there's a name for this kind of software but it's the kind of software that's used by managers in order to manage the shifts of workers oh right um, like rota like that kind of managerial software oh yeah uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I just thinking back to a friend who tried to unionize his Starbucks uh, a long time ago because um, because they were introducing this kind of software and people were not happy about their shifts being altered in this kind of flexible work regime uh, that Graber brings up. Uh, you know, obviously they failed, but uh, yeah, they tried. <laughs> he does. Um, um... <laughs> He does point towards that, yeah. The um, and like I, I had experience of working under this kind of stuff as well. Where um, back when I was kind of doing retail work, and um, particularly in cinemas, um, these kind of like your your contract was essentially for like two hours a week, but um, it could be anything from that two hours up to uh, like a full work week or, or beyond. But um, week to week, it was just um, change, like constant change. You'd never never be able to predict which. Um, which shifts you're working and like the that was used punitively as well like um you know people i've i'd seen on quite a few occasions people being frozen out by week after week being only allocated the this the the lowest contractual number of hours and then even they would say to management like i can't i can't live on this like can you give me something closer to like, and like I'd be doing like 15 hours a week and barely scraping by. And they were kind of begging for that essentially. And they'd be like, Oh no, sorry. It's like what the, what the spreadsheet spits out. And then predictably three weeks later, that person's gone, you know, mm, very convenient. Um, yeah. It's a very, well, yeah. uh, very baseline test. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, totally. Oh, yeah. Like where the, the technology exists as an excuse for the manager to exercise arbitrary power. Right. Yeah. And, um, and that's, that's the point of the technology ultimately is to kind of, uh, yes, um, uh, uh, reinforce yeah. managerial dominance. Um, and yeah, that, those are all factors that contributed to um, the uh, erosion of working class politics, um, and that Graeber then sort of takes a bit of a bit of time to talk about like neoliberalism being this kind of um, ideology that has um, kind of consistently prioritized the political over the economic. That like they would neoliberal policies or neoliberal thinkers consistently go for beating down the working class even when it doesn't make a shred of economic sense and they'll they'll do it purely for essentially out of spite you know because that, that's what that's what the managers were doing in that cinema right they were just like um use wielding control for the sake of wielding it like whether it actually led to better results or not um yeah it's kind of getting back to that sort of um uh, nonsensical uh, rentist or uh, uh, rentist uh, scenario that we saw in in Peter Fraser's book, right? That like this this system doesn't actually make any sense, but it's just the exercise of power for the exercise of power's sake. Um, this is a very interesting point that Graeber's bringing up because he's he's completely inverting the understanding of what neoliberalism you know typically is thought to be right which is 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 unrestricted free markets right mm. um so like this idea that of the sanctity of the free market and all, all this kind of thing that, that the economic is prioritized over everything else mm. right but he's saying no it's actually the complete opposite Neoliberalism is a system that almost always prioritizes political imperatives over economic ones. So, e like, the economic is actually completely secondary from the ne neoliberal point of view. 
Um, and I don't, I don't know how much I buy that. In it's, mm, I, I think there is a kind of logic to neoliberalism that is uh, dictated by kind of desperate market competition. But there's also certainly an aspect of it that is like purely punitive, right? Like, for example, if you look at the um, austerity programs that were implemented in Europe in the uh, in the aftermath of uh, 2008, um, you know, they were these kind of schemes that were cooked up to basically collect taxes from the poor in order to pay off the debts of the rich, right? And there was no real prospect that those schemes would actually pay off the debts, but they were done anyway just because it was seen as a way of ensuring social stability, right? Um, that, that, that just the kind of imposition of austerity could somehow by by its very existence um settle things down yeah right and um, um that is the that is the excuse that comes up quite a bit and even i've heard it firsthand from a uh, friends of mine that like that that reaction to 2008 was the only reasonable reaction because it was the thing that would ensure stability yeah but it, it's <clears throat> excuse me the way that it was framed at the time by those in power was that it would somehow like balance the books and and get the market on an even keel. But it was more a thing about getting people to accept a position of unquestioning servitude. Mm hmm. Right. Like that, that. I think that that was actually what it was about. It wasn't a, it was it was about accepting the new normal. It wasn't about um, an immediate question of balancing the books mm -hmm. because which, which, uh, I mean, which fits a uh, phrase or uh, sorry, Graeber's uh, point here that like it's prioritization of political imperative over anything that would make economic sense. Right, right. It, it's it's I mean, I think the economic logic of that is that you can put workers in worse conditions, sweat them more, get more absolute uh, surplus value, in increase profitability, stabilize the economy. But is that the only way that that could have been done? Mm, I don't know. I, I, I feel like Graeber's argument is stronger when it kind of comes to questions of the like the overall strategy of the capitalist class, right? Like presented with an opportunity that might be a little bit more humane and the one that is more draconian, they'll probably choose the draconian one because it makes them feel better, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Graeber's point here works when it's zoomed out a little, um, when it's from the 10,000 foot view um, of, the, of the system. Um, and so like, it's it's kind of getting to a head here where we've got this picture of um, the 1960s where conservative forces were growing very skittish about the socially disruptive effects of technological progress. And then they undertook a, after, especially after the Soviet Union faded, they undertook a, 
process of reallocating resources in directions that were less challenging to the social and economic arrangements of the time and um, would also support reversing the gains of uh, progressive social movements from the 60s. And that's kind of how you end up with this, where you've got this like shift to focus away from transformative, uh, like world altering technologies uh, and towards just military and information technology. Right. And uh, and and medical technology. Right. Uh, Developing developing um, antidepressants, Mm. anti-anxiety drugs. Um, You know, these things are not necessarily bad in themselves, but the reason why they become so all pervasive is because they're like just a way of medicating away people's mental problems that have developed because of the violence of neoliberalism, mm. right? Yeah, and um, like cures for deadly illnesses are still rare. <laughs> like, have yeah, there been like any nobody, new ones? nobody expects that to ever happen, right? It's just like ever more exotic variants on um, mental conditioning drugs and. And again, I, I want to make it clear, I'm not trying to shame anyone for using these kinds of medication. It's it's more a case of the uses to which they are put are are very political. Yeah, um, very much so. Politically directed, you know. Yeah, and uh, they're big business, you know. It's um, arguably bigger bigger business than curing cancer would be. You know, that's the kind of cool calculus of the, the market at work there. Yeah, and, like, Graeber then sort of talks a bit about, like, how, like, that the medical research or the medical progress has been kind of disappointing. Um, most of it has kind of come down to, like, small incremental improvements in medical process. We've got basically got sharper and sharper scalpels is um, the kind of main fallout from that, and the um, the Prozac and the, the Ritalin. Um, but also the military technology has been kind of shit as well, because, like, we, we don't we don't have the, the, you know, killer robots shooting death lasers from their eyes. We've got um, a sort of, like, a, a military or gun culture that still has to debate whether the AK-47 or the AR-15 are actually better than each other. <laughs> like, it's, it's kind of depressing that, like, even the highest, the sort of best... Um, field weapons available are kind of essentially on par with a 1947 firearm from the Soviet Union. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, um, and even there there was a recent article, I believe it was in The Atlantic, I want to say, that was about the development of the AR-15 rifle, ooh, or, cool. or I should say the M-16 rifle. Um, like, how the AR-15 got converted into the m16 and like how the bureaucracy of the pentagon um and the military industrial complex like utterly botched the development of the m16 and like how they they like undercut and sabotaged everything the ar-15 was actually good at like it's like even though the ar-15 design was actually quite good somehow it managed to be disappointing as well mm. um, this this is a big theme right that like basically everything's disappointing even even the <laughs> internet like um even computing like the the thing that we're supposed to kind of trumpet as being the greatest innovation of the age like even the internet and computing fall short of where people in the 50s thought they would be um like the, the internet is ultimately just a kind of faster version of existing commu- communication technology that could already be imagined at that time um, and it falls short of even that imagination, like where, yeah, we were, we were supposed to have, um, AIs that we could converse with and all this sort of stuff. 
Uh, yeah, it's all kind of. And what we've got is a bur- what we've got instead is a website where we can fucking argue with people in 140 characters. It's all it's all kind of depressing. <laughs> Not anymore. Ah, 280. Acceleration, my friend. Acceleration. <laughs> By this time next year, we'll be up to um, somewhere close to 500. <laughs> yeah, right. Really. <laughs> Moore's law. Who needs it? I want to. I want a Moore's law of Twitter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the every 18 months or so the character count on Twitter doubles. <laughs> it's like until eventually it just becomes live journal. Um, <laughs> nice. Oh, that's it. It's a word I haven't heard in a while. <laughs> uh so yeah, I mean like in in, in Graeber's words, uh, most observers agree that the results have been paltry. Um and there's especially been nothing really on par with the uh con- continuous stream of conceptual revolutions that characterized the early half of um the previous century. You're kind of like uh, genetic inheritance, uh, relativity, psychoanalysis, quantum mechanics, all this kind of stuff was um really groundbreaking uh stuff. Mm-hmm. Like and it's there, there just isn't anything on par with it. Yeah, not at all. Um, like, you know, the huge uh, advancement that was made in physics recently was the confirmation of the existence of gravitational waves, right? Experiment, experimental confirmation of the existence of gravitational waves. But that was just a confirmation of an existing theory that was made, you know, far earlier, uh, like in the 20th century. Um, and so uh, he even makes the point that... Uh, um, in social theory, in social science, there hasn't been any new ideas really uh, in like the last 50 years. Um, and uh, as someone who studied this stuff in some amount of depth, I, I really have to agree. Um, it, it, there's been an incredible stagnation in the academy kind of across the board. Yeah. Um, and um Speaking of the academy, he then like takes takes some pretty serious swings at the um, uh, the kind of corporate bureaucratization of the academy and of uh, of all sort of research institutions and universities. This um, this real stifling kind of um, corporate cosplay that all um, all these research institutions are now putting on, and that that mm. does seem to be a root of um, of a good chunk of these problems where. Um, Doing actual original research, any kind of blue sky research at all, is just out out of the question. Uh, Instead, researchers spend the vast majority of their time on administrative tasks. And even when they do get to do research, it's kind of like stifled very early that like... um, the, there's always constant questions of it being applicable and marketable and this sort of stuff. And it's, it's, it's all highly hypocritical as well, because like part of this um, corporate bureaucracy kind of culture is like constantly producing uh, PowerPoint fucking decks and like pamphlets that like uh, go on about, oh, innovation and, and like fostering imagination and creativity in our, in our um, institutions. And like, it's actually paired with an extraordinarily stifling and um, strangling atmosphere that uh, absolutely forbids innovation. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, is quite hostile to it. Um, uh, well, I spent enough time in that culture, right? <laughs> I know what that's all about. Yeah, yeah. And like he he points towards like specifically there's some, some good phrases here that like the tyranny of managerialism is something I quite like, and I, I might get that printed on something and hang it up on the wall. Um, <laughs> but uh, beyond that, like, and that's something that we don't need to explain. I think everyone listening to this show already knows what that's all about. Um, 
Uh, the, the, also, the other thing is just the privatization of research results. Um, that, like, in contrast to the kind of early sciences, which were very, um, you know, community-driven and, like, where uh, ideas were shared widely, in a lot of cases now, like, research that's done privately stays behind locked doors or um, companies buy up research and suppress it, um, you know, which is, uh, I think there was another sort of meme as well that's been floating around for a long time that, like, oil companies have had, like, recipes for uh, synthetic fuel, but they're locked in vaults, you know, they're just, like, privatized um, mm. privatized uh, results, Um Kind of doing this, this sort of De Beers uh, scheme of maintaining that kind of monopoly cartel position. Mm, yeah, which um, is, oh God, that De Beers stuff is, um, for, the, for yeah. the listeners who are unaware, it's this kind of thing where the uh, diamond market is artificially inflated. Um, like Diamonds are actually worthless. They're, they're just shitty carbon and um you you go some to some places in the world and the place is literally filthy with the stuff like it's just everywhere um people carry them around in huge buckets and like this diamonds are essentially worthless but the the market for diamonds is controlled essentially by a cartel um and they they also run the um the marketing and all the kind of stuff that keeps that kind of uh that grift going kind of horrifying <laughs> Um, yeah, it is. It is pretty horrifying. It's like, wow, it, it, it kind of it kind of boggles the mind that it even is real. You know? Yeah, I think there's there's another one where like I think um, basically all almost all sunglasses in the world are actually made by one company. Um, oh, but wow. all, all the brands are like subsidiaries. I mean, above the level of like cheap shitty sunglasses you get at the side of the beach, you know, but like actual sunglasses you would buy uh for that purpose are essentially all made in the same place um right <laughs> and are differentiated according to um just just brands that are all owned by the same company um yeah yeah that that really feels like a um a throwback to uh that kind of like monopoly capital stage of of capitalism where like you know you just have like the one company that produces everything or like the two companies that produce everything and they have like all this internal product differentiation um that is just there to create like market segmentation for themselves right um and yeah, I mean, there there has been an enormous amount of capital concentration that has happened since the 70s. Um, there's no question, even though, like, the De Beers cartel far predates that. Um, but, uh, you know, generally speaking, there is a lot of oligopolistic competition in, in the market these days. Uh, it's, like, never really feels like that's a pressing issue in most things you deal with. Like, you never feel like, oh, like, you know, there's no competition, so this is just a shoddy product that um, that that would easily be blown out of the water if another competitor entered the market. That doesn't really feel like the problem of capitalism that we're dealing with in the same way it was in, like, the 70s, where you had cars that would, like, fall apart in two years, right? Uh, but nevertheless... Like, even though there is a lot of oligopolistic competition, there isn't a lot of innovation. Right? No. Yeah. Um, and that's the main thing we're sort of concerned with here. Um, it's the, the lack of um, the lack of any kind of change or like or like so competition between sunglasses manufacturers would give you 
probably nothing because like they're just sunglasses like what, what the fuck could they do beyond that but um right. innovation <laughs> would instead give you like i don't know retinal implants that have like uh, automatic shutters on them or something cool you know and that's that's the difference we're talking about here is that the, the competition is kind of worthless it doesn't doesn't actually foster much in the way of um real creativity it's it's like you got to go to the heart of that in real innovation if you want that stuff yeah it just kind of guarantees like a bare minimum of of product quality you know like that you can't get away with just shoveling the most absolute garbage product onto the market and expect people will buy it yeah um, yeah um so i think one of the kind of one of the last sort of really great sort of points made in the article is about the uh, how in this final stultifying age stage of capitalism, we are moving from poetic technologies to bureaucratic technologies. And by poetic technologies, um, Graeber means the kind of technologies that could be used to bring mad dreams to life. Yeah. And, and like, it's very telling that the absolute paradigm of a poetic technology for our age is the iPhone, mm. right? Like yeah. Steve Jobs is the paradigmatic mad dreamer. <laughs> like they said yeah. he couldn't do it but he did he made yeah. a computer that is a phone <laughs> and a phone that is a computer the world was never the same again rounds of applause it's like you know <laughs> i guess he, like he kind of realized the tricorder dream right mm. like that's a thing that happened but is that really like the absolute extent of the, the the outer boundary of what we can conceive of technologically? Yeah, it's um, it's horizons, right? Like, I mean, the the horizon of imagination throughout pretty much all of science, technology, and culture has shrunk down to be like basically a hoop that barely extends beyond your grasp. Like, it's it's not much of a horizon at all left. <laughs> Um, yeah. And like the, the best we can kind of manage now is like yearly iterations on the same phone. Like even even that is kind <laughs> right. of <on> its course. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And honestly, that doesn't seem like there's really, I mean, people bring up things like VR or AR or whatever, but mm, I don't know. Nah. It doesn't seem like there's anything anyone's really all that excited about in the tech world anymore. No. Honestly, like when I when I listen to these tech podcasts or or games podcasts or whatever, people are like, eh, like you know, like oh, four K TVs, eh, it's okay, I guess, whatever. Yeah, and the next thing beyond yeah. that is eight K, which is like, oh. as in physically indistinguishable <laughs> from the previous one. Like, um, yeah. Um, so I think there's 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 another sort of interesting point uh, towards the back of this where that like. Um, the defenders of capitalism tend to lean on three sort of claims, usually. The, the first being that capitalism has fostered rapid technological development. The second being that uh, although it may filter enormous amounts of wealth towards small minorities, it does so in a way that generally increases overall prosperity. And the third being that it creates a more secure and more democratic world for everyone. And Graeber observes that even, even those staunch defenders are retreating from all three of those claims and instead falling back on claiming that capitalism is the only possible system. Like, even, even the usual excuses are gone, you know? And that's why you have someone like 
Donald Trump becoming president and palling around with all the autocrats found across the world because it's like, well, it's the only possible system. And in that kind of mentality, sort of like the 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 leadership model you look to is this kind of arbitrary and brutal executive figure right there's just like well it's just about keeping things going and 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 keeping people down and that that's pretty much all that we need in a leader right mm, pretty um, much yeah that's 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 what the logic goes for um for that kind of calculus because you, you don't you don't need the dreamers like um you don't need anyone who would uh who would show you a path towards if you, if you presume that a path towards a better world is impossible then why bother listening to anyone who would um point that way you know and i think a little bit like uh, the previous article we looked at the californian ideology the kind of this article does kind of um slow down a little bit and kind of skip to a halt at the end um with a very similar theme like a, a call to Essentially, a return to the modern again, like the Californian ideology had. Um, and Graeber finishes out with a call to let our imaginations once again become a material force in human history. Uh, a call to expand these horizons back out so that we can actually um, entertain possibilities that aren't, uh, aren't simply what we have. And this is especially important in the face of climate change. Um, that, like, now that... Now that this uh, climate crisis is really bearing down on us, like we we need imagination, we need real, serious, radical innovation. Um, tweaking the dials on the thing we've got already isn't going to cut it. Like um, the, the unlike what um, came up in Four Futures, where we can't go back to the past, we can't hold on to what we've got. There there has got to be something new beyond it. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. It, 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 the sort of idea that all we can have is more of the same and we just need to submit to a strong kind of CEO figure who uh, sweats our labor as much as possible. Uh, I mean, it's not really going to do anything to revitalize capitalism and it's also not going to do anything to deal with the more pressing issues that we have <laughs> in our lives right yeah um so yeah like it's it's an article about um disappointment uh analyzing why that disappointment is there how it came about um and in having pointed out explanations for why um history played out this way uh wrapping up with a call to um to address that to, to counter those forces and to um to push back against this um, this kind of moment that we're in this uh, this era. Yeah, and I, I think there is a quote. It's I think it was from Zizek um, that I read once, which was maybe I'm getting that wrong. Uh, but uh, it's always Zizek. Everything. <laughs> yeah, he's talking about uh, how most or maybe all politics our structure around a narrative of fall from grace. Um, and I think the interesting thing that Graeber does in this article is to provide a different narrative of a fall from grace than the ones that are usually presented to us. Um, there, you know, he, he's presenting this kind of, 
move from poetic technologies into bureaucratic technologies as an account of the 20th century. Um, and that's different from, say, the account that uh, looks back to um, FDR as the as the leader of the Democratic Party who was kind of the peak of American progress um, and looks to, uh, you know, restoration of the Democratic Party as uh, as what we need to to imagine. Um, uh, it, and it, it's different from uh, a lot of other narratives that are very commonly peddled. Uh, so um, I think that the, really the, the constructive thing that Graeber's done here is to, to, to give that different kind of historical account as a kind of a parable about where we are now. Um, and that maybe gives us a, di gives us a different... Uh, point of view from which to uh, address these questions. Mm, yeah, and I think that's um, uh, perhaps important for this show that uh, we, we should probably keep trying to find these kind of articles, uh, books or pieces or whatever that um, give us some kind of fresh perspective on where we are and where we could go. Um, and yeah. kind of try to revitalize thinking um, on the left specifically, we're just thinking in general because it's really lacking at the moment. <laughs> yeah, and I, I like I don't think I succeeded in any way, but that was certainly my motivation for going into grad school was thinking like basically from this perspective that in order to address this stagnation and paralysis of thought that we have today, it's necessary that we go back and re-examine our fundamental assumptions about what the past was, because that conditions what we think is possible so much uh, or necessary. Um, so that you know, that was always my motivation for getting into history. Was it wasn't because I was really, you know, entranced with the past and I wanted to bring the past to life or something like that. It was because I thought that it's essentially do the kind of work that Graeber is doing here of going back to the past in order to undermine our assumptions about what it was. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I hope that, you know, with, with this show, we'll continue to do that and uh, to at least analyze, um, analyze these things. Um, is there, is there anything else you, you think we missed before we kind of wrap up? Uh, no, I think we, we had all the beats. pretty much covered it. Nice one. Um, yeah, it's been a good, it's been a good episode. Um, we'll be back in two weeks. I think next we're going to be doing a theory episode about alienation. Mm -hmm. um, alienation in the state and in the workplace and trying to kind of relate it to where we are now. And um, I think the, the inspiration for doing that is that like, I, I realized that if you could boil down my political ambitions or the kind of the, the politics I want to kind of see played out in the world, down to one word, that word would be disalienation. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that's, it's a concept that really underlines a lot of uh, socialist kind of theory and, um, and praxis. And, and cer certainly this essay that Graeber has uh, presented here, you know, it's, it's, there is a very deep uh, romantic strain to to what Graeber is is uh, bringing up here uh, in terms of like poesis, right? He wants he wants you know his 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 politics that he's presenting are are 
based on this idea of sort of the wild and the poetic and bringing that to life in in the technology that 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 is all around us at all times um and uh you know that is a lot about overcoming alienation Mm -hmm. it is yeah and um it's important stuff and that's why we're going to be covering it in the uh, next episode um covering some theory like it's going to be from a sort of layman's perspective though so um don't worry if you haven't read a, a whole lot of um, theory before. We're going to do our best mm-hmm. to explain in uh, understandable terms. Um, yeah, in the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. Uh, we're on Facebook if you search for General Intellect Unit. Uh, we're on SoundCloud. Uh, we're on iTunes. We're on pretty much all of the um, podcasting apps that you could care to mention. Um, so, yeah, we'll see you in two weeks to talk about alienation. See you then. All right. Bye. Bye.